Welcome to this podcast from Central, Jesus at the Heart. More information is available from www.jesusattheheart.org. Are you feeling serious this evening? No, I hope so because <laughs> the text this evening is basically the uh, Egyptian plagues and there is uh, no way to make, give that a fun summer twist. I'm just, I, I just think I'm going to be upfront about that so uh, it's going to be relatively serious. So we're actually in the middle of a series on Moses. Okay. How many of you, have, how many of you are guests tonight? Oh, there's a few of you. Don't worry. Well, I'm going to catch you up. And, and if I talk too quickly, then the good news is there is a book, there's a film, there's probably a musical. So, you know, you can do it. And we've been looking at the life of Moses because whenever the Bible spends a chunk of time giving you a long story and unfolding stuff about a person, one, it's rare. And secondly, there's a lot to learn. I mean, the Bible isn't really that big when you think it is the only words that God calls his God-breathed words. So whatever's in them is really important. And there is a lot about Moses. So, so far, Moses is a Hebrew or an Israelite. He's basically both. I think it just depends on your translation of the Bible or a bit like saying, I suspect you're Scottish and you're British. So he's, he's called both. And the Israelites, Moses' people, had basically come to Egypt as refugees during a dreadful famine. And when we get to the book of Exodus, we fast forward 400 years and this land that had been the place that welcomed them with open arms and had been their salvation during this famine, 400 years later, the political tide has completely turned and it has now become the place of their slavery. They have literally, as a people group, the Israelites have become slaves. They have been ordered to be slaves. And not only that, but they have become persecuted and hated So that the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, says that every time there's a birth of an Israelite child, the midwives are to inspect the child and if they're a boy, they are to kill it, to throw it in the river. And that's appalling, isn't it? We have some appalling things going on in various nations in the world, but that's that's, that's up there, isn't it? Now Moses is born into this time in history. And he's one of these Israelite boys. He's one of the boys that should have died. And his mum goes out on a limb and she disobeys Pharaoh and she saves him. And in this amazing twist of events, he gets found by Pharaoh's daughter who falls in love with a small Hebrew baby. And it's not explained in the Bible, so we never understand why, but Pharaoh allows his own daughter to keep a Hebrew baby. That's one of my questions for heaven. How did that happen? So Moses is brought up in Pharaoh's court. But Moses has a call on his life. The injustice that's been done to the Israelite people will have been felt deeply by all the Israelites. I mean, being a slave is no small deal. Losing children, birthing a baby that gets thrown into the river, that's no small deal. But Moses felt this injustice really strongly and he felt that he would rise up and do something about it. He just knew it. And the thing about having a call of God on your life, and Moses learns this quickly, is it's one thing to know that God's called you for something, but it's a slightly different thing to get the instructions 
on when and how you're to do the thing that God's called you to do. And Moses' first attempt to right this injustice ends really badly. He ends up murdering an Egyptian that he sees beating up a Hebrew slave. He has to run for his life and he is basically exiled. He has to go into hiding and spends the following 40 years away in the desert. And I suspect at this point, and I'm sure you can all identify when God's asked you to do something and it's gone disastrously wrong, Moses will have thought, I'm not going to be able to do this thing. I'll always feel it's an injustice, but I'm obviously not the person to write it. And then 40 years into his desert hiding, God turns up and he says, okay, Moses, it's time. The call that you felt to do something about this was right, but the time is now. And the amazing thing about Moses is that he is, he starts off super confident, but after 40 years in the desert, he no longer believes that he can write this injustice. And the mark of Moses' early leadership is reluctance. I'm sure there's a book, The Reluctant Leader, there certainly should be. Because actually all, many, maybe all of the best leaders are reluctant. Because the first thing that happens when we get asked to do something is we go, oh no, I don't think I could manage that. No way. I think there's, you know, she would sing that better. He would preach that better. They would help those people better. I think you want somebody else. And that's because we ultimately know in that reluctance that if we are really going to do the thing that God calls us to do, we're not going to be able to do it alone. And I don't know about you, but I love doing things that I can do alone. Don't you? How many of you like things that you can achieve on your own? Yes. How many of you love going into an exam when you've studied really hard and you're well prepared and it's your moment to tell them everything you know? <laughs> I was one of those studious girls. That's uh, what you get there. Um, and how many of you hate going into one of those exams where you absolutely know that you haven't done enough work, you should have attended at least one or two of the lectures, and it's a bit late now and you're going to bomb? And basically, whenever we do something with God, he says, why don't you come and sit an exam that you have not studied for and you don't really know what to do? And don't worry, I'll just like, keep you right as we go along. And that is ultimately how God likes to do things. And uh, I'm with Moses. I feel reluctant and I often feel uncomfortable. And that's where the similarity between Moses and I ends, basically. But, you know, because he's pretty cool. And in his reluctance, Moses basically says, please, please, please don't pick me. And God says, yes, 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 I'm going to. But don't worry, I'll give you your brother and he'll do the talking and you can just hear from me and you can pass it on to him and he'll do the talking and you can just be my guy. And Moses says, okay. And I think for many of us, we think that that moment where we do the thing we're going to do for God is going to be like a fanfare moment But often it is just that moment where you're finally down on your knees and you just go, oh, okay. And really that's all God's looking for. He's looking for people who will partner with him. He's not looking for superstars because he is the superstar. And if there's anything that you see in what's about to come in Exodus, it's that God is a superstar. And when he chooses to, he can superstar any superstar out of this world that's who God is. So we're now got to Exodus chapter 7 and we've got to the point where Moses has hooked up with his brother Aaron. He's come back from the desert to Egypt and he has come to do what God has asked him to do and Moses and Aaron 
I don't know how they managed to get an audience with Pharaoh. Well, I guess Moses had been a prince of Egypt. So they come and they have this audience with Pharaoh. Probably a little bit knock-kneed, they say to Pharaoh, basically, God has told us that you are to let his people go. And uh, what do you think of that? And um, Pharaoh just laughs at them. Who's this God? Who is the Lord? I'm not scared of him. I'm not scared of you. What is this? And we're going to pick this up in verse 8. Chapter 7, verse 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one of them threw down his staff and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. Until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and stone. And Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. He raised up his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile and all the water was changed into blood. And the fish in the Nile died and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. Indeed, he turned and went into his palace and he did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water in the river. And I want us to think tonight, probably on two levels. First of all, we're going to look at what that meant to the Egyptians and what was happening there. But I also believe that there is a lot of parallel for what is happening in our world. And I'm going to dig into that. The first thing I notice when I read this record is that Egypt at this period in history was heavily occultic, wasn't it? Well, look at the first thing that God says is he says, basically, you're going to go to Pharaoh and Pharaoh's going to say to you, perform a miracle. Now, if I were to, if God was to say to me, Faith, I want you to go and get an audience with Theresa May, and I want you to tell her, God has said, better not say you should let the Scottish people go, because that would obviously be politically charged, but you should let, I don't know. 
It's hard, isn't it? Because like we're letting everyone go at the moment. But um, no, sorry, that was a joke. And I, I yeah, okay. <laughs> but if I had something very politically, whatever, to ask Theresa May and I went to see her, what are the chances that the Prime Minister of Great Britain would say to me, prove yourself by performing a miracle? I mean, it's just a bit weird, isn't it? When was the last time that someone came to speak to you about something and you said, prove yourself by performing a miracle? I mean, it's not the normal thing that we would say in our culture. Even if you say to someone, I'm a Christian, would they say, prove yourself, I'm sick, pray for me, and if I'm healed, I'll believe you? No one says that, do they? I think they should, actually, but they don't. Why? Well, this was a different kind of environment. This was a kind of environment where Pharaoh's advisors, many of them were occult practitioners. It gets translated as magicians, but basically they were occult folk. And they were tapped into something really powerful. How do I know? Because of what they managed to do. Yeah? So Moses has a miracle. And isn't it interesting? God always equips us for the place that we're going. You know, when you first read the record as a kind of Western person and it says, you know, God gave Moses a couple of miracles up his sleeve he could perform, you kind of think, a bit weird. Then as the record goes on, you realize Moses needed to have a miracle to get Pharaoh's attention. And the miracle is quite cool. How many of you have ever seen a stick turned into a snake? No, so it's not like everywhere all the time, is it? And what's interesting about this is not only does do Moses and Aaron do this, stick, become snake, but then all Pharaoh's magicians throw down their staffs and they all turn into snakes. There's something about this nation at this moment that there is enormous amount of spiritual power in and around Egypt. And by the way, it is so cool, is it not, that like Aaron's snake eats everybody else's snakes. I'm just saying, like, if you're a dream interpreter, like, what does that mean? It's not, it's not hard, is it? It's not rocket science. But um, that doesn't, even, even that doesn't impress Pharaoh. And then we get into the plagues. And I just read out the first one. But basically, there are nine amazing plagues. They are appalling and dreadful but they are also undeniably supernatural. And this first one, the Nile turning to blood, you know, just on a human level, that would have been like horrendous. We've got to remember there was no plumbing in Egypt. It's not like, oh, what, the, what a shame the rivers turned to blood. Never mind, at least the kitchen tap's okay. These were people who, for whom the river and these other sources of water, that was their water. So seven days with no clean drinking water. It says that it smelled so bad that they were struggling to drink it. Why would you even try to drink it? Because that is your water. And also, if you go to a country, and I certainly know from being in Africa, and you go to villages where basically people are living up and down rivers, not only is the river their main source of water, but the river is their main source of food. They tend to be fishing communities. So the fish have died, the rivers turned to blood. And you would think in itself that might have convinced Pharaoh. Like, really? But you know what is, to my mind, really, really interesting? It's what happens next. Not just that Pharaoh's heart grows hard, but that the magicians, the occult practitioners, they can do that too. Do any of you know any occult people, any psychics or magicians or warlocks or witches in the UK who could turn our whole water source into blood? 
Have you ever seen anything on that level? Well, I haven't. I have seen some stuff and, you know, we kind of scare a ghost, but I haven't seen that. There was something going on in Egypt at this moment. And, you know, it's interesting because when you speak to people who perhaps haven't read the Bible or don't know much about spiritual things, there is often a basic misconception and it is that all spiritual power is kind of like, whoa, it's all the same. It's all out there. Actually, no, the Bible is utterly clear in so many places that there are two kingdoms and they are at war and there is a kingdom of light and God is the head and he is light and he is love and he is justice and he is righteousness and he is faithfulness and there is a kingdom of darkness. There is and it opposes God at every turn and both of them have power. It's also incredibly clear right throughout the Bible that that power is not equal, it's not fighting it out, oh I wonder how it'll end. The end is an absolute certain but there is a fighting it out until the end comes. And so what we're seeing is occult practitioners tapping into dark power and then we see Moses come along with the power of God and if we were I would have read you all of chapter 7, 8, 9, 10. But um, I learned a long time ago when you preach a sermon not to read too much of the Bible or people start to glaze over. And You can read that when you go home. But if we were to read on into chapter 8, what's really interesting is for the first two plagues, the blood and then the next one, what do they get next? Something horrible. Can't remember. It'll come to me. The next one, the occult practitioners do the same thing as Moses did. So they turn the water to blood and they bring, what's next? Frogs. That's, yeah, every plague is grosser than the last one. They bring the frogs up from the water onto the land. Moses does it and then the occult practitioners do it. There is something big going on here. And it's interesting because when you read about the plagues, you often read that it's all about the hardness of Pharaoh's heart and the, the power of God. But I think there's a lot more going on than that. And it's interesting, if, if we look forward into the New Testament, I just want to look at a verse to just give us a bit of a lens for what I believe is really happening. I don't really believe this is like a, a kind of, you know, man-up competition between Moses and the magicians, you know, my magic's bigger than your magic. I don't think that's what it is at all. I think there's something much bigger going on. And in Ephesians 6.12... It says this, our struggle, Paul says, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rules, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I did tell you it was going to be quite serious tonight. I did, didn't I? I think, yeah. Okay, sorry. Our struggle, and I do believe that this struggle here is not a flesh and blood thing. It's not a boys competition thing. It's not just about Pharaoh. I think some, in some level it is. It's obviously being enacted between human beings. But actually there's something bigger at stake. And the struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, powers of the dark world, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. leaving this out and then we come to the third plague and in come they're called gnats they basically sound like midges they bite that's it when I read gnats I just think ooh midges and for the first time the occult practitioners cannot produce what Moses produced they can't do it 
And it says in chapter 8, eight verse 19, it says, then the magician said to Pharaoh, okay, we're out. That's my paraphrase. They say, this is the finger of God. We're out. We're out of this competition. Do you know what? A smart guy, and Pharaoh can't have been that stupid, would have said, okay, I'm out too then. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them, just as God had said. The great thing for Moses, because this would have been an incredibly, incredible tough thing to have lived through and battled through, is that God had already told Moses right back in the beginning the way it was going to go down. He said, you're going to have to produce all sorts of signs and miracles, but don't worry, I'm going to do that. And you just have to keep telling Pharaoh, let my people go, let my people go. His heart is going to harden and it's going to be a struggle, but ultimately there's going to be freedom. And Moses held on to that. And just to step aside for a moment, I... I suspect a number of you may have in your early Christian life, perhaps right now in your Christian life, had that wrestle with yourself. Let's step down from big kind of Egyptian plague thing to just the wrestle that we have with ourselves. And I know in years of, of leading in churches, I've walked with people who've just wrestled, wrestled with terrible things that were done to them when they were too young to understand what was being done. Just injustices, horrible parenting, um, just all sorts of things that just feel awful and they're wrestling to get free. And you know, it's a tremendous privilege to wrestle with someone but it can also be incredibly difficult. And I know there's times with people where I'm literally on my knees just saying, God, I'm telling them that you can do this. But I really hope you can. And I know that sounds very lacking in faith, but when you are walking with someone who's really going through it, you are just like, God, you have to set this person free from this addiction. You have to be the one that helps them to walk free. You have to be the one. I can't do this. I'm promising them stuff, but I'm only promising them what you can do. I'm not promising them what I can do. And it is an awesome responsibility. And I suspect Aaron and Moses felt that. And this clash of kingdoms, what Ephesians 6 calls this struggle, this wrestle, is most definitely going on. Why? For the same reason that there's always a wrestle whenever you're walking with even a person or yourself to freedom. Because basically the devil has everybody in Israel exactly where he wants them. God's people are basically slaves, they are oppressed, and they are too frightened to do anything about it. And that's where the devil loves to keep people. That's the spiritual battle. Even if you're a Christian, the best thing that could happen next is to keep you in a place where you're chained to the habits that make you feel not good enough, to the things that oppress you, that discourage you, to negative patterns of thinking, or whatever it is that holds you back from walking into freedom and walking out the call of God on your life. And the spiritual battle is for your freedom. And you're the people who vote. And the great thing about Moses is he is utterly partnered with God. Remember what we said in the beginning? He knows that it's only God that's going to be able to do this. And I just know because we're a bunch of human beings here tonight that there are some of you that are facing stuff and you just have no idea what to do. You're not coping. You're not convinced that you're going to be able to do whatever it is God's asked you or even just whatever you'd like to break free from on your own. And you're sitting and you're wondering, how am I going to pay those bills? How am I ever going to mend that relationship? How am I going to hold this marriage together? Is there any possibility of this thing being okay? 
Some of you are probably thinking, God, is there any possibility that I will be okay? Because I just feel so like I won't. And the great thing is into that comes a God who is God of the impossible. A God who sets people free. A God who walks like a million people through a sea. I don't know if it was a million, but it was loads of them, loads of them. A God who comes up against Pharaoh and Pharaoh is no match for our God. And the other thing I think when I read this passage is I think about the day of reckoning. Right now in our world, there are lots of things going on that are so unjust, aren't there? There are so many situations that need a Moses. There's so many situations where we think, God, is it not time to walk into that nation, to walk into that street, to walk into that place and set those people free? Who is God calling to do that? God calls the church. It is us, the church, that are called to go into places and set people free. And obviously for us, like for Moses, it is incredibly important that we hear the right timing. If we just walk in anywhere and make a start, we could end up in the desert for 40 years quite easily. And maybe some of you are there. But right now in our nation, and right now around the world, there are many injustices going on, and God does see them. And one of the things that's absolutely clear in Scripture is that God does not put up with injustice forever. That there is a day of reckoning, a day of, dare I say it, very unpopular at the moment, judgment and punishment. Because you see, our God is a good God. One of the most miraculous things about the plagues is that the, the, apart from the first three, they did not touch the children of Israel. The Israelites were actually just like noticeably exempt. So once we get to like locusts and darkness and, and the horror of the firstborn of every family being killed... The Israelites are exempt. Our God is the God of the Israelites. He's the God who protects. He's the God who blesses. But he is also a judge and he is also just. And there is a day where every man and woman has to stand before God and account for the way that they have lived life, for the decisions they've made. And I, I could be wrong and that you might need ministry afterwards if, if, if I am wrong, but I don't think any of you are quite in Pharaoh's category. I don't know, are there, are there any like total like despot country leaders? No, okay, that's good. I didn't want to give anybody time to put their hand up, just in case. But the truth is God's standard, we often raise God's standard to very kind of, very kind of like, oh, well, I'm sure if I haven't done this, 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 I'll be okay. And they're all really horrible things. But the truth is that our God is very holy. And that actually when you read the Bible, you realize that every single one of us on a day of complete reckoning is going to come up short. We just are, because God's so good. We're not going to come up short because just because we're so bad, but because God is so good. And the amazing thing about the Bible is it reveals Jesus. Moses is really a type of Jesus. He is a savior who saves a nation. And throughout the Old Testament, you see these people who show us what Jesus will look like. And then we come to the beauty and glory of the Gospels and the New Testament. And Jesus appears and suddenly the day of reckoning is not looking too scary at all. Because in Jesus, we have someone who dies and pays the price, takes the punishment for everything we deserve. 
And so each one of us will have our day of reckoning. God is a just God. Everything in the world that you see is unfair and unjust. God will set things right. He will hold people to account. But he'll also hold us to account. But if we know Jesus, if we've invited Jesus to come into our life, he comes and he pays and he covers and he protects and we become people who are truly blessed. And if you're new to church and new to this whole thing, you might have wondered some of the songs we're singing tonight, what are they singing about? Church is what we're always singing about, pretty much every song is how amazing God's grace, his favor and his love are. How amazing it is that on the day of our judgment, we will stand there and God will say, look at you, you are fantastic. You are spotless, you are clean and we know we're not, but we have been washed clean by what Jesus did. I did tell you, and I, I'm just going back to my first comment, which was, I did promise you tonight, wasn't just going to be light and fluffy. I did say that right up front. And the great thing is that most of us in this room do know that that day will not be a scary day for us. And if you don't know that, the absolutely fantastic thing is it's not difficult. And we can show you tonight how to become a Christian, how to face the day of reckoning with Jesus in front of you. Because honestly, that's the cue you want to be in. You know, when you approach God for judgment, you want to be like, I'll have Jesus in front of me. Seriously, that's what you want. Let's just go back a minute to this spiritual battle. I'm going to come to a close in a bit and the worship banner kind of come up. And I'm going to give you some options. Some of you are very aware of a spiritual battle in your life. Now, better say, for the record, you don't want to over-spiritualize everything. You know, going to the shop and discovering that all the cheese and onion crisps are out and they're your favorite is not a spiritual battle. Okay, just, just making that clear. And neither are many things. Okay? But there is a spiritual battle. There's a battle to keep you from being everything that God's made you to be. That battle is real. And when you feel it, it's because it's real. There is a battle to stop you telling other people about this stuff. Because the enemy of our soul would like to keep the people of God and the whole of our nation and the whole of the world in a place where they are in slavery, oppressed and too afraid to do anything about it. And so tonight for some of you, I think you just, you just need some prayer. You need someone to stand with you for the thing that you're battling. And the great thing is we already heard God can do impossible stuff. God is amazing. Some of you tonight need to learn how to have Jesus in front of you on the day of judgment. And the great news is we can do that tonight. Some of us are afraid. Some of us are reluctant leaders and we know that God's asking us to do something and it just feels too big or you've had a go and it didn't work out. In which case we would definitely love to pray for you because there's a whole room, this is a kind of crazy church and there's a whole room full of people here who've tried all sorts of things, many of which didn't work the first time. We can empathize with that. And we also know what it is to be too afraid to try again. Moses was too afraid to try again. And we'd love to come beside you tonight and pray for you to be able to take a step out of that place. So the band are gonna come up Let's stand and pray. Let's just ask God to examine our heart. We've said a lot of things tonight and a lot of it was quite heavy. And um, it's the way it is when you do the plagues of Egypt. And let's just ask God, God, where am I? 
Where am I tonight, God? Lord, we ask you to examine our hearts. We ask you to speak to us, God. I just pray that you'd strip away everything that these people didn't need to hear. What is the thing that we needed to hear tonight? What are you saying to us? Are we, where are we afraid? You know, my sense is that one or two of you don't actually believe there is a call of God in your life. You don't rate yourself very highly. You watch other people do things and you think not for the likes of me. I think God would love to do something about that tonight.